And you say, oh, well, that's a different country where people suffer like that. Or that's a different demographic. I don't fit into that demographic of people that that kind of suffering happens. Or maybe, you know, I, I eat well. Or I exercise, so obviously this won't happen to me. But you know what? Suffering happens to all of us. No matter if we're white, no matter if we exercise, no matter if we have a dugout basement, <laughs> suffering can still happen to us. There was uh, recently something that shocked, it wasn't recently, it was about 10 years ago now, when Aaron and I were in D.C., there was the D.C. sniper. And this is the guy that was just going around randomly shooting people around the beltway and didn't matter where it was. And it just paralyzed people. People wouldn't go out of their house or whatever because they, it, could, it could happen to anyone, right? And then there are some people that I talked to said, you know, oh, it won't happen to me. But then they thought about it more. It could even happen to me. And there was an article in the Washington Post and this is what the article said. It said this about the D.C. sniper. It said, the fact is, staving off our own death is one of our favorite pastimes. Whether it's exercise, checking our cholesterol, or having a mammogram, we are always hedging against mortality. Find out what the profile is and identify the ways in which you do not fit it. But despite our best intentions... It is still, for the most part, random. And it is absolutely coming. This whole book of Peter, aren't you sick of hearing about suffering over and over and over again? And you're like, oh yeah, that's great. 2,000 years ago, Asia Minor, exiles, you know, aliens... Um, early church, that's not us. That's not me. You know, you can have your stories about suffering, Peter, but really when it comes to us and our situation, we are far removed. We are not like them. Why such an emphasis on suffering in Peter? Please hear me. This is my point this morning. Why such an emphasis on suffering? Because we all face it. It profoundly exposes who we really are. And lastly, suffering is at the crux of the Christian message. One, we all face it. Exposes us. And lastly, suffering is at the crux of the Christian message. So let's look together at 1 Peter Chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Pay attention as we look to God's Word. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. 
And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, let this word again transform us and change us. And let this idea of suffering not just go over our heads. But let us see that it will affect us all. And let this scripture, by the power of your spirit, come to us in those moments, even in the times of preparation for it. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, like I've said about First Peter, as we've been going through it um, in this winter and early spring, is that it is a what people say, the most concise letter about what it means to live the Christian life. The most concise letter in the New Testament of what it means to live the Christian life. And I like to call it the resume of the Christian. Right? And we talked about what's on that resume throughout the book of First Peter. We've seen on that resume their background, their exiles, their aliens, people that have gone from Rome and found a new place in, uh, in modern-day Turkey. And uh, in this new community, they feel alienated. Also, we found that these people are chosen by God. They are called, you know, the priesthood, the royal priesthood. They are said they have an inheritance that will never perish. On the resume, it says that you are hospitable, that you are loving, that you are forgiving, that you have these spiritual gifts, that you submit to authorities. These are all kind of things on that Christian resume. But then surrounding all that resume, or maybe what I'll call the red stamp on the resume. You know how they have those red stamps denied? Boom, you know, like that. The red stamp that kind of stands out on that resume would be suffering. Ba-boom. So the first thing that anyone would see by looking at the Christian life would be that red stamp that says suffering. And the suffering that these people face was persecution from the outside for what they believed, for being different, for uh, being a community that works against what the Roman Empire was about. They were people that were probably insulted. It's probably before the actual um, martyrdom of these Christians, but it was hard. Uh, I don't. If any of you have gone through First Peter, maybe heard sermons on this passage. Uh, I think there are two ways. I'm going to go to application right away, so you know. There are two ways that people have applied um, this passage, and I think there are two equal and opposite errors, okay, of applying this passage. And one way of applying this passage is this. Uh, You say, um, you know, we are like these people in Rome in the sense that we face the same kind of persecution in America today. And then you just kind of um, put a, you know, what's that, like a wedge in there, like a What's the bar I'm looking for? Yeah, crowbar. So you put a crowbar and you just wedge it, right, to get the application as much as possible. And you're like, you know, I have a fish on the back of my car, 
And sometimes people give me a dirty look because of the fish on the back of my car. It's probably because your driving isn't very good, really. But, um, or, or maybe you hear in cities and stuff like that, people put you know, big pictures of Jesus or statues in their front yard or plaques of the Ten Commandments in different places. And you know, the city says, you know, you can't have that up. And we go, man, persecution. We, look at us. We are such victims in America that we can't put the Ten Commandments anywhere we want it or a statue of Jesus into my front yard, right? Persecution. It's just like what these people faced in 1 Peter 4. Okay, I do think there are times as Christians we face persecution. There's ways that, you know, we are belittled because of our faith. But to compare it to what they experienced then is uh, pretty trite, Okay. And to compare it to what people in other countries face, where you were executed if uh, you convert to Christendom, is also pretty trite (laughs) to say that we face these kind of things in America. So that is a kind of crowbar, we face the same kind of persecution way of applying. I don't think we can do that. At the same time, you can say, well... Obviously, we are not persecuted at all in the United States, so therefore this passage only applies to suffering in general, not to persecution. Well, I'm going to take a little, kind of a middle ground stance here. I like middle ground, if you didn't know that. I'm a straw man. You know, I use two examples and I go to the middle. It's a good way of argumentation, but that's what I'm going to do uh, this morning. But the, I think that we do face persecution in America, and I call it silent persecution call it the silent persecution of America. And that is this, that there are things that we hold up in our society in the United States, youth, income, money, fitness, health, a healthy family, and independence. If you fit in these categories, you will be esteemed. You will look good. You'll be on the front of magazines. (laughs) You will look good to your neighbors. If you fit these categories, you have succeeded in this culture. But if you are someone that doesn't fit into those categories, we will kind of put you off to the side. (laughs) Uh, Maybe we'll put you in a nursing home. That's a good place we'll put you. (laughs) Maybe we'll just isolate you in your home and let you just have a TV and watch that all the time. We won't put you on the front of covers of magazines, that's for sure. I call it a silent persecution. One that kind of, you know, says, if you want to be successful, if you want to look good, which is hard to do, then you need to medicate yourself to keep at that level. And we've seen many people whether it's movie stars, whether it's people that we know that are high-functional, living in that way, but then they have to medicate themselves to stay at that level. I don't know what the medication looks like. It might look like um, alcohol. It might look like drugs. It might be um, just having to decompress for long times in front of the television. It might be other things like looking at pornography. There are just things that I need to do to keep at this high-functioning rate to numb myself to get there. C.S. Lewis made a great illustration about this. 
He said, you know, in Western culture, we have set it up um, our rules and our society like this. We are all our own ship. And our ships want to get to a certain land. And Western culture has said this. We will set up a society that if you run into someone else's ship, you're in trouble. Anyone can go to where they want to go. You can do what you want to do. Just don't get in other people's ways. Okay? That's kind of the Western ideal. You know, that's better than what it was in, in Turkey, right? Because if you got in someone else's way, like Christians did, they were persecuted. That's not true today. Sure, you can have your Christian belief. You can have your other belief. That's fine. But once you run into someone else's ship, someone else's destination, that's when you're going to get in trouble. But Lewis said this. He said, there's also a problem, though. If you start not to have control of your own ship, <laughs> if you start medicating yourself or whatever it might be, you start making choices that are really bad personally, you start to get out of control yourself. And then, you know, that steering wheel or the rudder or whatever it might be, it loses control. And then what happens is you end up running to people anyway. And he says... The Christian message doesn't say, just stay in your own box, do what you can, don't run into anyone else. The Christian message says, the only way not to do that is to be cleansed from the inside. And in our society where we remove ourselves from pain and suffering, just look good, we are not allowing people to actually work through their pain and their suffering. And because of it, we are having a society of people that are out of control in their ships and they're ending up running to other people anyway or supporting them through the government or whatever it might be. Does that illustration make sense? I hope it does. John Piper, looking at this passage, said this, and I think it's good how we'll look at it is that when we look at this passage, we're saying that God governs all suffering. Therefore, anything that comes into your life in the path of obedience is designed for persecution. This does not simply mean being persecuted for your faith, but suffering as being part of a fallen world. And again, Lewis says this, God whispers to us in our pleasure. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. Well, here it is, verse 12, shall we look? Beloved, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised. Why would Peter say to them in the first place, do not be surprised? Why would they be surprised by persecutions and suffering? Well, I think they'd be surprised by this. These are many Jewish um, readers at this time in this early church in Turkey. And it was taught kind of this as um, a Jewish person. Um, blessings and cursings. If you do the right thing, you will be blessed. If you do the wrong thing, then you will be cursed. So these people were probably going, okay, we are being persecuted. We're facing a hard life. Does this mean that we are cursed? And Peter's saying, no, it does not at all. It does not mean you're being cursed. And here he's going from the Proverbs to Job. 
Okay, what do the Proverbs say? If you've read Proverbs, you're going to go through the summer. The Proverbs say this. You live this certain way, and good will come. If you don't live in a certain way, there are consequences for it. Okay? You don't save, then when time comes where your dishwasher breaks and you have a saving, there's consequences for it. Okay? But Job, a guy that lived a perfect life in the Old Testament, um, he also faced suffering, didn't he? And what did his friends say to him? You obviously sinned, Job. You obviously did something wrong. But God instead says to him this, No, suffering happens to anyone. Whether you're doing the right things or doing the wrong things, suffering happens to all. Okay, uh, a book that I really um, gleaned a lot of good things from. I'm sorry, Tim Keller again. I love Tim Keller. He's the Pope of the PCA, okay? Just say that, okay? But he's just, he's just so good. So um, a good book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering by Tim Keller. Really well written. I encourage you, if anyone that you know is going through suffering um, or yourself, it's a good book uh, to pick up for people. But one thing she says is this. It's understanding suffering. We have to understand this. Suffering is both just and unjust. Suffering is both just and unjust. Look with me, verse 15. Okay? But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Okay? Now, if you suffer because you're a murderer, you should suffer. Okay? You should be thrown in jail. If you're complaining, oh, I killed someone... Oh, woe is me that they threw me in jail or I'm going to be executed. You should be, right? There should be suffering for those that do wrong. There is judgment and consequences in this world for when you hurt others. So there is just suffering. Saw that in Proverbs, right? But then at the same time, there is suffering that is unjust. And Keller says this, living in a broken world, living in a world that we call is the fall. God created it, and then sin came in, and it was broken. Because of that, the rules of how the world is supposed to operate have been broken. So therefore, those that even do evil, that we see many times, good can happen to them. And those that do good, evil can happen to them. That's the consequences of living in a broken and unjust world. And many of you will say, well, that's just not fair. How can it work like that? Well, like we've said over and over again by going through Peter, is that Jesus was a perfect person living in the way you're supposed to in this world. And what happened to him? He even suffered. So suffering is both just and unjust. Again, I want to look to verse 15. And um, many people, as we went through it as a community group and memorized it as um, our praxis group, um, we were wondering why does um, the idea of a meddler get lumped in with murder, thief, and evildoer, right? Now, there's all these bad things, then meddler, right? You know? Well, something we don't see in the Greek here, it says, even as a meddler. So he's trying to make a comparison and contrast. I don't think, in many comments, I don't think there were murderers and thieves and evildoers, which is like something being very vile, in the church. 
But he was trying to say, oh, but wait, even as a meddler, that might have been an issue that people were facing in that time. And by meddler, it, it meant by um, someone not having good tact towards people that were outside of the church or even social graces. People that uh, might have, you know, pressed people outside of the community in a way that just was not right. You know, and if you suffer because of that, that is, you should suffer. You should be having tact and grace and love to those outside yourselves rather than being someone that meddles or is seeking persecution. I think that is a good word for us in the United States and many that I've seen around. Um, I think there are many people that like to go get persecuted on purpose, right? I am going to be the most rudest person to those that are not Christians. And then when people say, you're a jerk, I'll say, oh, it's because I follow Jesus, right? No, it's just because you're a jerk, you know? And then I am surprised, uh, I'm not going to go too political, I am surprised when, um, you know, with issues that are going on in our age today, when people raise up their hands and say, well, I'm a Christian, um, and look what rights they take away from me. Look, I can't stand for this anymore. And they play the victim role. Please hear me. We are not victims as Christians. And should we be surprised when we are victims? No. Why are we surprised when the world looks at us weird? Why are you surprised when we stand for things that are in the Bible that are different? Why do we throw up our hands? Oh, lawsuit time, litigation, let's go to court. Sometimes that's needed, yes. But many times we just say, I'm going to deal with this with grace and humility. Because I know, as a Christian, that's what I face. Okay? I don't have a crystal ball, okay? I don't know what's going to happen in the future with... Christian persecution. It might get worse. It might get better. I don't know. But no matter what happens, I hope we don't play the victim like other groups in our population do. But instead of saying, I'm not surprised. God said this would happen. That's my little political comment for a little bit. Okay, there you go. So I'll say that. Okay. But another time, suffering comes my way um, many times in thing is, even when suffering does come our way, how many of us are then surprised when it does? I know I am. When I suffer and go through pain, I go, why is this happening to me? And many times I ask a few questions or say a few things. Obviously, God is against me. <laughs> Look at what he's done to me. He's obviously against me. Or maybe I'm the only one that faces this. Everyone else seems to be doing well. But look at me. I'm the only one that has to face this kind of thing. Or I can say, I am cursed. I am cursed. But God says, no. Suffering is not surprising. Don't be surprised when you face it. I glean many things from Aaron's grandfather, my mentor in high school, but one thing that I say often, even today, what he taught me was this. He lived a, a tough upbringing. His brother committed suicide. And he said to me, he said, 
He said, Dan, was God surprised when my brother committed suicide? Is God surprised when suffering comes your way? No. God is not thrown off. God is not going, oh my word, I can't believe that happened. But he knew. He knew. And so we should then not be surprised when things have come our way. Because he knew what was going to come. Going on. Looks at 12 and 13 here and go a little bit more. It says, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice, be glad when his glory is revealed. And then it goes down, I'm going to look at verse 17. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Here, uh, it's important, maybe we don't see it, but the same word that's judgment in verse 17 is the same word that is test in verse 12. It's the word krima, okay? To test, to judge. And you say, well, why is it being used different words there, okay? Well, it's, it's this. In, in the Old Testament, uh, what it's, it's used, it's saying judgment would happen towards the temple or towards Jerusalem. And what God was saying at that time when judgment would happen at Jerusalem is God is trying to refine the people of Israel and saying, when I... When suffering comes your way, or persecution comes your way, and we saw that when we looked at Judges, who will you then go to? Who will you then trust? When you are pressed, when things that you truly desire more than me are taken away, who will you then trust in that moment? And what suffering does is suffering is a fire, a refining fire. That burns away everything and shows what you are truly after. And the church, one that says we acknowledge God and acknowledge Christ, when we are persecuted as a church, is God putting the fire to us and saying, what do you truly trust in? And it's a good thing he's judging us first because it is showing and he's saying what you believe in. So when the true judgment does come, we've already gone through those trials to say, yes, our assurance was in Jesus. Okay? So this is the time where I use the chicken soup from the soul illustration, right? Right? You guys remember those books? Some of you are too young for those books. Where they had the fun illustration, someone goes through pain and suffering, and then something happy happens at the end. Good thing you went through that, right? Is that, what you, is that what pastors do? They give those fun illustrations, right? Oh, man. I, I love being melancholy sometimes. So uh, take, take this illustration, okay? Chris Steinbarger, who's a little, here a little while ago, shared the story about Elizabeth Elliot and uh, her husband, Jim Elliot, who was a missionary that was martyred in South America. And then she and the other wives went down there and ministered to the tribes, and they became Christians. Yay, it was amazing, great story, right? Well, Elizabeth Elliot also wrote a, a fictional book. And the fictional book was called No Graven Image. Okay? And it was kind of a story about what she faced 
um, before uh, meeting Jim of her own missionary journeys. And the fiction story tells about a missionary named Margaret. And the whole story talks about all the journey Margaret went through to become a missionary in South America. And all these trials, tribulations of becoming a missionary and doing it, and it's just going great. It's coming the right way. Learn this language, all these things, going to translate the Bible in um, a language that doesn't have the Bible. She finds a guy named Pedro that um, can do the translating form. Only guy in the village that can do this. And she is skipping and hopping to Pedro's house in South America, ready to start translating the Bible. And saying, look at all these things that have come into place. God, you are so good. She gets there and Pedro says there's this infection in his leg. And she's been trained in some of these basic nursing things. And so she gives Pedro penicillin. And he has an allergic reaction to the penicillin. And right there, the one guy that could do the translation in this language didn't have it dies. And all these villagers see this woman, what she did to Pedro, and say, what do they think about Christianity now, right? And then shortly after that, the story ends. It's a fiction story. Um, Elizabeth Ellie got a lot of angry letters, Okay. The book um, was downplayed by evangelicals, saying, how could you write such trash? And Tim Keller um, got to study under Elizabeth Elliot at Gordon-Conwell. And they were asking about this book. And she explained it to them. See, you know, people didn't read the very end, did they, Well, And the very end of this story says this. It says... Margaret says, God, if he were merely my accomplice, had betrayed me. If, on the other hand, he was my God, he had freed me. And then Elizabeth Elliot explains it to them. Please hear me. You see, at the end, Margaret realizes that the demise of her plans had shattered her false god. And now she was free for the first time to worship the true one. When serving the God of my plans, she had been extraordinarily anxious. She had never been sure that God was going to come through for her and get it right. She was always trying to figure out how to bring God to do what she had planned. But she had not really been treating him as God. All wise, all good, all powerful one. Now she had been liberated to put her hope not in her agendas and plans, but in God himself. If she could make this change, it would bring a rest and security she had never had. In short, suffering had pointed her to a glorious God, and it had taught her to treat him as such. And when she did so, it freed her from the desperate, doomed, exhausting effort to seek to control all the circumstances of her life and those that she loved. Do you cling more to the things that will burn away, or do you cling more to God? Do you rejoice in the one that will not fade away, or do you rejoice in things that will come and go? 
Do you think you have greater plans than God of the universe himself? Even when he gives suffering your way? Do you think that you can find your own identity greater than the identity that God has given you? Suffering points to what matters. <laughs> oh man, I get in trouble saying these things, can I? Right? God has a plan, right? God is sovereign, right? That's the word we use in our, in our church, right? God is sovereign. He knows all. He's all good. So loaded. When you are suffering, it doesn't help very much. God is good. He has a plan. Let go. Let God. Hear me about the Christian gospel. What is held in parallel is this. God is both sovereign, but he is also a suffering God. Christianity, more than any other religion, is able to explain suffering and pain because at the very crux of the Christian message is a God who suffers. God is accomplishing the defeat of evil not in spite of suffering, agony, and loss, but through it. It is through suffering on the cross. It is through by Jesus living a perfect life and then receiving an unjust punishment that he is, savoring, he is saving a suffering humankind. It is the very heart of the Christian faith, suffering. It is not only the way Christ became liked and redeemed us, but is the one of the main ways we become like him and experience his redemption when we face that suffering. Oh man, this illustration is going to be good because I didn't know what was going to happen last night. Trevon Jackson the point guard for the Badgers, last year something happened. One guy got injured on the team who was supposed to be the point guard, and another guy just didn't play well. So here this sophomore kid was forced into the role as point guard for the UW Badgers. And it was a very difficult year for him. He talks about how um, he was mean, he was angry. He wanted to give up on basketball. To numb much of his pain, he drank and got drunk with his friends. And it was a hard year being thrust into that place. And then this last summer, a mentor came to him. And while he was practicing basketball with this mentor, every time after the practice, they started reading the scripture together. And Trevon Jackson, he gave his life to Christ this summer. And if you've read articles about this, um, Sam Decker and others say, this guy is changed. He is a changed person in how he's played this year and how he's acted towards us in grace and love and humility. And he always talks about Jesus. So it was the Ohio State game. 
And the Badgers are playing at the Cole Center here in Madison. And Trevon Jackson got the last shot. And he missed the last shot. And his mom was sitting in the stands around Badger fans. And people didn't know it was his mom. And she said, I couldn't imagine the, the curses that came on my son. Swearing, yelling at, belittling of Trevon Jackson. And Trevon hears him too. And his mom says, Trevon, can you believe the kind of things they're saying about you? Can you believe what they say? And you do all this for the team and they say this about you? Do you know what Trevon said to his mom? How much more did my suffering Savior face? I'm crying about basketball, you know? But, you know what? That gives me encouragement. And a guy last night in the Final Four that took the last shot and missed the Final Four, they can say, you know what? Give me all that suffering. Give me missing the last shot. And people say, you will remember that for the rest of your life that you missed the last shot. You know what? What I'll remember for the rest of my life? A Savior that died for me. That when He comes at the end, He has burned away all those other things to say, I know what will save me. Not making that shot, but believing in Him. Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Therefore, when you suffer, when you're exposed, when you see the crux of the Christian message is Christ, when suffering does come your way, you can entrust your life to God and still do good, knowing what He has come your way, what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for suffering. Thank You for putting those things in our way. Thank You for giving us physical ailments. Thank You for giving us hard times and hard relationships here in the church that it would show us what You faced Yourself and what we need to face in this world so that one day suffering will be gone and this will be made new. We pray these things in your son's name. Um, there's a... I don't know if there's an altar call in Presbyterian circles. Did you know that? There's a Presbyterian altar call. All you Baptists are going, oh, what? What's going on? And the altar call is this. When you come forward to take these elements... You are coming forward to say, I believe in Jesus. I trust in Him. I need His suffering so that I can be made renewed. You say, well, I never came forward for an altar call. Guess what? Every time you come forward for communion, you're coming forward for an altar call. You are saying, I accept and believe in Jesus.
Do you? If you do, I would call you forward. I would say, partake. If you're not there yet, it's okay. Sit. There's some prayers there. But don't come in a way unworthy. Don't come saying, oh, I don't want to look bad. Okay? No. Come saying, I trust in Christ. Uh, I'm going to have people call you out. Bill, if you'd help me, and Perry, and Adam, um, would you help me to serve this morning? And, uh, you know, there's grape juice on the outside, wine in the middle, and do we have gluten-free stuff this morning, Sam? There's no gluten-free stuff. Sorry for any gluten-free people. Um, And uh, we are going to um, come forward. You can partake, and then we'll go back and sit together. If you have kids that aren't taking communion yet, we will pray for them. And... uh, yeah, that's what we'll do. Let's do the call and response. Let's print it in your worship guide here. Prepare our hearts. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord. You are holy, O God of majesty, and blessed is Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. He took upon himself the weight of our sin and carried the burden of our guilt. He shared our life in every way and though tempted, was sinless to the end. Baptized as your own, he went willingly to his death and by your power was raised to new life. In his dying and rising, you gave birth to your church, delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. Sanctify this bread and wine and use these elements to communicate to us the mercy of your Son that we might be enabled to submit our lives to you. Grant that this sacrament would empower us to die to ourselves and live for your glory now and forever. Amen. Those are helping me serve. Come on up, please.
On the night he was betrayed, our Savior took the body and he broke it, the bread and broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Take, eat, remember to me. In the same manner, he took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant. Shed for the remissions of sins of many. Take, drink. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your suffering for us. We are thankful that uh, you are not a God that just says, <laughs> whatever comes your way is what I do. But you are a God that came and lived among us. And you know what it's like to live this life in this broken world. And thank you for breaking the power of sin and making us new. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, let's stand together and sing this last song together. It's a fitting song because it was written by a man right after he had lost his fiancée. Had just died. And he wrote this song, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. God of love who shared his love strengthen us in our love for others. May the Son who shared his life grant us grace that we might share our life. And may the Holy Spirit dwelling in us empower us to be only and always for others. 
And all God's people said, Amen. Go in peace.